This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You need to use a combination of protecting your spine with rest, being in a safe position, either flat on your back or moving as a unit, and then wakening up all the little muscles in your core so that you can start addressing the root movement issue that led to your spine deteriorating and becoming painful in the first place. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Bussin, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll discuss the natural approach to prostate health. We'll hear how to deal with acute back pain. We'll find out how to spice up your baking. And lastly, we'll learn about abstinence. But first, a little bit of business. Gentlemen, are prostate problems spoiling your day or waking you up at night? Ladies, are you tired of these disruptions? Discover Prostate Perform. Formulated with clinically proven natural ingredients, Prostate Perform helps reduce the frequency and urgency of men's bathroom breaks. Why wait? Prostate Perform relieves symptoms of BPH in men so you can both get back to enjoying your favorite activities. Available exclusively at quality health food stores. To learn more, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. And to ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. Dr. Philip Rochadas graduated from the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine in 2004, preceded by an honors undergraduate degree and master's of science degree, both in nutritional sciences, from the University of Guelph. Philip practices at the Bolton Naturopathic Clinic in Bolton, Ontario, with his wife, Dr. Heidi Fritz. Philip's areas of clinical focus include mental health, autoimmune disease, and metabolic syndrome. He also serves as an associate professor at the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine, responsible for the delivery of the second-year curriculum in clinical nutrition. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? Thanks for having me back, Jamie. It's always a treat to be here. So today, we are going to talk about the prostate and such, which is, of course, of interest to me, being a male. For those who don't know, what is the prostate and what does it do? So the brief anatomy lesson is that a healthy prostate is about the size of a walnut. It has the bladder sitting on top of it and the urethra, which is the tube the pee goes through, goes through it. It adds certain things to seminal fluid, okay, which are important. Mm -hmm. Um, But unfortunately, over a lifetime of exposure to testosterone, this thing grows What we're here to talk about today is called benign prostatic hypertrophy, which means non-cancerous growth of the prostate. As this thing grows, it presses on the bladder. So I think a lot of us will be familiar with pregnant women saying they need to go pee all the time. That's the fetus pressing on their bladder. So as this thing grows, it presses on the bladder, and it gives the man the sensation that they need to go pee all the time. They'll complain, I wake up many times at night to go pee. As it grows, it's also crushing the urethra, the tube, going through the middle of it. So not only do you feel you need to go pee all the time, but then when you try to go pee, only a few drops comes out. So these are very common symptoms. 50% of men by age 50 will complain of these symptoms. 100% of men by age 80 will complain of these symptoms. The one thing I want to get out right off the bat is, if you have these symptoms, please don't assume it's BPH because BPH's very ugly cousin is prostate cancer. So we don't want people seeking just, oh, I'm going to grab something over the counter to help this. 
if you're experiencing symptoms like that, you should basically go for a simple blood test. There's also the digital rectal exam that everybody dreads. But a simple blood test will really give some good insight into, hey, is this BPH, non-cancerous growth, or may I be looking at something more serious? Okay, so that's obviously very crucial advice to start. Who in general is affected by? Is it just a function of age that we're all going to get there or some affected more than others? Yes, some men will suffer this quicker than others. Diet certainly plays a role. Lifestyle certainly plays a role. Yet it is sort of an inevitable aspect of aging for men. How does diet and lifestyle impact this? Things that generally help keep hormones in check. It's the standard stuff, right? Fruit and vegetable based diet does a lot. It increases what's called sex hormone binding globulin, which will then allow there to be lower levels of free circulating testosterone. These sorts of things for for women, that's going to, it'll protect against hormone dependent cancers for both men and women. Prostate cancer is one for men and for BPH, same thing. It's mopping up extra testosterone. Testosterone is a driver of non-cancerous growth of the prostate. Okay. And how can you tell if you're suffering from BPH? Is it, is it just what we discussed before, the issue of having to feel like you, you may have to pee and not being able to? Or is there something more to it? Yeah, you'll have increased frequency. It's like you'll feel you need to pee all the time. And when you try to go, decreased flow rate. You know, Jamie, remember when we were like a teenager and you, you could like pee across the entire bathroom? Yep. That changes over time, right? So the, the power of urine flow and it can start to get very compromised as BPH sets in. What are we to do if we have these issues and, and we have effectively ruled out cancer? So it's, it's BPH. We're fairly certain of that. What do we do? There are a significant number of over-the-counter natural health products that have been shown to quite efficiently manage this issue. So anything that is going to achieve the outcome of shrinking the prostate will provide relief from these symptoms. If put together correctly, that relief should start happening within a week, within 10 days. So it's very possible to address this concern quite quickly, but you require an appropriate combination of natural health products at the right dose that have good data that they will indeed help this issue. All right, so let's talk about those products. What are they and what sort of dosages should we be looking for? Yeah, and before thank you, it's a great before we dive into that, I'll also add this is really invasive for men, right? I've been I've had the privilege of being on this show with you and you make excellent points about the importance of sleep. Yep. And what even minor sleep deprivation does to somebody, yep. right? So we're talking about men that'll be waking up four, five, six times every night to go pee. It's really, really disruptive, if nothing else. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm at, I'm at the stage where I'm waking up once and it's a pain, you know, anything more than that, it's obviously going to affect my mood, my ability to rest and regenerate my muscles, et cetera, et cetera, for sure. Right. So it, it is something that a lot of men are like pretty desperate, almost like I need help for this. I can't keep waking up. So the rock star ingredient, the one that's gotten the most research attention that I think most people are aware of is sun palmetto. Um, There is the Journal of the American Medical Association, typically known to be very negative to anything natural. 
They did what's called a meta-analysis. It's a very powerful tool in science. It's basically when you take every study in existence and you mathematically combine it like it's one. Mm -hmm. So they did a meta-analysis of saw palmetto comparing it to finasteride, which is the common prescription drug that will be given for this problem. And the conclusion of meta-analysis was saw palmetto at least works just as good with fewer side effects. So you see something like that, and you're like, well, how come more people aren't prescribing it then, right? Super Mm -hmm. safe, nonetheless. So saw palmetto has excellent data of benefit. Yet what we like to do in the world of natural medicine, a lot of the stuff we're using has really, really high levels of safety. Mm -hmm. And then they'll work a little different from each other, yet all working towards the same problem. So we like to say, okay, what medicines have really good evidence of helping this? What is their dose? Let's combine three or four or five of these, all of them, at the same time at a proper dose. And that's when we start to get the really good outcomes that we're talking about, big time relief from this within seven to 10 days. And I presume that there's been testing done to see that they're not contraindictive of each other, right? So if you're taking saw palmetto and you're taking other elements in your supplements, they're working together and not working against each other, right? That, that's Agreed, logical. Yeah. but this area we are talking about, this one does need a little bit of caution for okay. combining with prescriptions. Okay, let's talk so about that. The, yep. Yeah, the natural medicines that we're combining, we're not concerned about combining them yet, especially when you talk about herbs. And a lot of the things we are talking about for prostate will be herbal. Uh, you definitely want to check you know, have a, have a go over with your physician or your pharmacist. Is it okay for me to take these herbs in combination with whatever prescription I might be taking? Okay. Well, that's good advice and that's sensible, right? Like we definitely advocate for that on the show. If you have pre-existing conditions and you're already on medications, you have to consider how everything is going to interact with each other. You have to, it's on you. Yep. Yeah. And for a handful of things, I've had the privilege of being on this show with you about we really aren't concerned about yeah. interaction. You know, yeah. probiotics, there's no drug you can't take a probiotic with, right? Yeah. Yet, hey, when we're talking about these herbs we're talking about today, that's definitely something that needs to be reviewed. Okay. So other than the salt palmetto, what have they found to be helpful? What other ingredients? So there's four or five we're going to talk about. Another one is stinging nettle. People in the world of herbal medicine are very familiar with this herb. It's touted to help with arthritis. It's considered anti-inflammatory. The dose required to help prostate is very modest, so that's really ideal when you talk about combining a lot of things and being able to get a therapeutic dose of all of them. And we're talking about seven, eight, nine human studies that show you give stinging nettle, and over a period of time, you get relief from symptoms of BPH. Okay. Another one would be plant sterols. So I think people will be more familiar with plant sterols in the world of cholesterol reduction. Yes. So these are naturally occurring in uh, many plant oils, and they are isolated and concentrated for the purpose of human supplementation. And when you take them at uh, 1.5 to 2 grams per day with meals, they very efficiently lower bad cholesterol. So the prescription drug you'll take for bad cholesterol will lower it about 30% whereas the plant sterols have been shown to do about half of that, about 15%. Okay, great. Well, there are also multiple studies at much lower doses, and that's really intriguing, really low-dose plant sterols, again, having a very important clinical effect on BPH. That's good to know. You know, a lot of people suffer from both issues, so I guess two birds, one stone. Yeah. There you go, right? Yeah, the, the dose for BPH will be a little lower than will actually lower cholesterol, but again, widely used, been around a long time, safety not a concern, and has this effect on BPH. And I guess lastly, a really neat one, this is a very specific proprietary extract of rye flower pollen. 
rye, flour, pollen, extract at a very, again, reasonable dose. That's the neat thing here. Like, hey, people have heard pumpkin seed is good for prostate. Sure it is, but you need to hit 30, 40 grams. You're not going to go take that in a pill, right? Right. So, hey, some pumpkin seeds, that's a great idea too. But rye flour, pollen extract, multiple human studies, only giving about 80 or 90 milligrams of it a day. Really low dose. Again, very important clinical outcomes for relieving symptoms of BPH. And my understanding is our friends at New Roots have a product that combines all these, yeah? There are. There are several options available. If we have a little time, I really want to get back onto the topic of prostate cancer. Is that possible? Sure, let's discuss that. Just some education for men. So it's about a PSA, and generally doctors won't offer running a PSA. A PSA is a blood test. It stands for prostate-specific antigen. The magic number is considered four. If your PSA is under four, you're generally considered to be okay. If your PSA gets over four, we start having concerns that possibly the presence of prostate cancer. Now, many things can elevate PSA. If you find it elevated, it doesn't mean you have cancer for sure, not at all. I mean, if you like to ride a bike a lot, that can elevate PSA. Hmm. If there's any sort of physical trauma to your growing or rear end area, that can elevate PSA. So a urinary tract infection can elevate PSA. So it's not like the end-all and be-all, but it's a very important marker. Physicians typically don't want to bother measuring it till you're 50. I encourage anybody listening, as young as possible, get a PSA test. There is amazing, amazing human science that measured people's PSA in their 20s. So we said the magic number is four. If you have a PSA in your 20s of two, and now you're 60, and your PSA is five, that might not be a big deal. And it'd be really good to know what it was when you were 20. If you have a PSA of 0.2 in your 20s, and now you're 60, and your PSA is 3, even though it's below 4, you should be concerned about that. So number one, the younger you can measure PSA, the better. And then number two, if you get an elevated reading, I would do it right off the bat for everybody. Normally, they'll just do the total PSA, and then there's something called free PSA. You want to measure them both. First, they'll only measure total, and then they'll measure the other one if the total looks abnormal. When you measure both, you then get what's called the PSA ratio. And this is a really powerful indicator of the presence of prostate cancer. So you want the ratio to be higher. I'll give you specifics. So now you measure total PSA, it's five. Mm -hmm. You measure the free PSA and you got a ratio. If your ratio is less than 0.1, that is a 60% likelihood that you have prostate cancer. Wow. If your ratio is greater than 0.25, you have a 10% likelihood of having cancer, right? So it's just a little bit of knowledge for people. Go get your PSA checked. Don't just get total PSA. Get total and free, and you can just get online PSA ratio, and you will see these numbers. Can you authorize these as a naturopath, or do you need to go to an MD to get that test? Don't know. Naturopath can run this for you as well. And is this something that is covered by OHIP, or is this something that's going to be extra if you get this test? 
Anytime you get blood work through a naturopath, there will be cost for that. Of course. So if you want OHIP covered, you have to go to your GP. OHIP does cover this, yet sometimes we find the doctor says, well, I don't think you need it. Yeah, I know. I know. For I, it, I, so I understand then they that. charge you for it. Right? Yeah. But no, technically, OHIP should cover this, yes. So if a doctor recommends it, it's going to get covered. If you have to ask for it, though, and the doctor's neutral, is that then become a charge? Or once you once- That depends on the specific physician. Okay. Some people will say, hey, no problem, fine, I'll run it for you. Some people will say, I don't think you need it, so I'm going to charge you for it. Okay. And I mean, it's it's maybe a $35 test. Yeah, no, I think it's worth doing, particularly if there's, you know, family history, right? So that's- Especially when there is, especially. And just that little advice, we do it in our office all the time, convincing 20, 25-year-old men to take $35 out of their pocket to run this. And I'll say, you know, you probably won't think about it, but when you're 50 or 60, you'll be really grateful you did this. 100%. Thank you very much for coming on the show today. This has been extremely informative and, and very helpful for me as a male, and I hope our male listeners and even our female listeners who have male loved ones benefited from it too. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Jamie. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Fine and Associates are family lawyers who dedicate themselves to dealing with separation and divorce matters every day. They specialize in custody, access, child and spousal support, and division of family property. It's their mission to resolve all issues amicably. But, if necessary, they're prepared to go to court and fight strongly on your behalf. Fine and Associates family lawyers are committed to achieving the results that you deserve to help you move forward with your life. If you're going through a separation or divorce, call 416-650-1300 to speak to Lauren Fine for a free initial phone consultation. For more information, visit torontodivorcelaw.com. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Dr. Aaron Boynton, a.k.a. Dr. B, is an orthopedic surgeon with a unique approach to musculoskeletal pain, blending both the art and science of medicine. As the first female orthopedic surgeon to work in both the MLB and NHL, she had an extensive experience dealing with overuse or wear and tear injuries. Welcome back to the show, doctor. How are you? Oh, I'm great, Jamie, and thanks so much for having me back. My pleasure. So we are going to talk about something very specific today, and that is acute back pain. So we're not talking about, you know, the casual aches and pains. These are sharper pains, right? Yes, these are those sudden sharp pains that take your breath away. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I've experienced it after the birth of my kids, and I've seen loads of people with it. And it's one of those uh, situations where you just don't know what to do. You're caught with this sudden, severe pain in your back, and you can't move. And what usually causes this is a a muscle spasm, Mm -hmm. that the muscles that are in your back all contract and turn on at the same time because they're trying to protect a part of your body that's um, inflamed or damaged by wear and tear. And so the muscles are actually trying to prevent the spine from moving. 
it's awful. It's really awful. Okay. So how do you know if it's just like if you've tweaked it or it's more serious, it's an acute issue? So by far and away, the most common reasons for your back going into spasm would be a minor injury to a disc, one of the little facet joints in your spine getting irritated, or you actually pull a muscle, say you lift something too heavy. Right. But more serious situations can occur. And if you have signs like involuntary leakage of either urine or feces or sudden paralysis or weakness in your legs, then there could be something much more serious going on, like a a central disc herniation that is putting pressure on the nerve roots that supply your bladder and your bowel. And you need to go to the hospital immediately. Fortunately, this is really rare. Like, I remember once when I was an orthopedic resident at the Toronto East General, it was 5 o'clock on a Friday, and we were all supposed to be going to an orthopedic gala that night. And I was on call, and my habit was always to swing through the eMERGE and, you know, make sure there was nothing waiting there for me. And sure enough, there was a gentleman who had uh, one of these central disc herniations and a cauda equina syndrome. So Dr. Malcolm and I spent our Friday night in the OR helping him instead of the gala which, in all honesty, I preferred. (laughs) But it's very rare. So it's happened to me once in my career. But other things that people need to pay attention to, we refer to as red flags. So if you're not feeling well, if you have a fever, if if you've been losing weight and you have a poor appetite, or anybody with a history of cancer, really, you've got to go to the doctor and you have to get checked. It's not necessarily an emergency in that situation, but there could be more serious underlying issues like an infection or cancer in the bones. And, and again, these are extremely rare, but it's better to get checked and know that you don't have these things so then you can just focus on dealing with your muscle pains and getting better. Those symptoms you just listed would be in addition to back pain, right? Like that's what you're talking about. Exactly, exactly. Okay. And so you would have back pain with a fever or... Right. Okay. Um, And sometimes people will have issues that are completely unrelated to their back, like a ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm, which is another emergency, but they'll feel the pain in their back. But if you have something really serious like that, you're going to have other symptoms as well that will cause you to go to the emergency room. Okay, so let's focus on if you think or, you know, based on what we've discussed, you think you have an acute issue, how does it get treated? What's the best treatment for that? So for a typical muscle problem, disc or joint issue, what I recommend for people in the first 24 to 48 hours, take it easy. The studies in the literature show that any rest period greater than 48 hours doesn't help. So I recommend that people lie flat on their back on a firm surface, bend up the hips and the knees, support them with pillows, and maybe apply some heat. And this is a safe place for your back to be. All the muscles can relax, and you're not going to do any damage to your spine when you're just lying there. And then I think the key thing is to actually start wakening up all of the little muscles around your spine in your core. And the reason for this is that the problem in the first place is likely that muscles have not been working properly in either your hips or your core, and this has led to overload of either the spinal disc or the little facet joint or overuse of some of the muscles at the back of your spine so that they have gotten injured. So when we actually turn on the muscles in our core sequentially, then the muscles can work in the right order and they don't have to all turn on at the same time. And I've been actually working on a little program for this because it's a common thing that happens for people and then they don't know what to do. 
So if you turn the muscles on, then they can work in concert together and not have to go into spasm and create that horrible pain. And the final thing that I recommend really in that first few days while things are settling down is to make sure that you move in a way that you're protecting your back. So move as a unit, kind of uh, become a plank. So when you're lying in bed, don't twist your hips and your shoulders in opposite directions, but turn as a unit so that your hips and your shoulders are moving as one so that you can allow the area of the spine that's inflamed to settle down. So really the key thing for that horrible period of 24, 48 hours, and it can last up to about five days, you need to use a combination of protecting your spine with rest, being in a safe position, either flat on your back or moving as a unit, and then wakening up all the little muscles in your core so that you can start addressing the root movement issue that led to your spine deteriorating and becoming painful in the first place. So I presume after five days, if, if you're still suffering from pain, like if you haven't been to the hospital or to see a doctor yet, that, that's the time to do it, right? Somebody's got to see you if that pain persists, yeah? Most definitely. You know, you should go to the doctor. If you if you have pain that's significant enough that you, you're not able to sleep, that you're not able to get comfortable, you really should get a checkup. And particularly if you've had episodes of pain over years, because what tends to happen to people who have had back injuries is that they may have an acute episode like this that goes away after a day or two and they don't seek medical attention and because everything goes away, they feel great, they really don't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. But then maybe six months later, they make a wrong move and it happens again. And each time this episode of back pain occurs, it lasts a little longer, it's a little harder to get rid of it. And so you, you should get medical attention to make sure that you don't have terrible arthritis, or if you do have terrible arthritis in your spine, then you can deal with it. Okay, so we're aware of symptomology, which is pain. Beyond the period when we have pain, is your back still recovering? Like how long will it take before you're going to get back to normal or where you would recommend doing normal activities? Well, I think it's important to move around right away, okay. uh, but getting back to activities like you're going to lift or you're going to play sports, it's quite variable because it depends on really what the underlying problem was, whether it's a minor little muscle injury or whether you've actually injured the disc itself. The disc can take four to six weeks to heal, whereas uh, a facet joint can settle down within a couple of days. But anytime somebody has an episode of pain like this, I consider it a mess that you need to change how you're loading your spine. And often there's problems in the hips or in the, with the lats and the shoulders, which have led to overload of your back. For example, if we sit, we sit at work. What happens is our psoas muscles get short and tight, and that leads to our glute muscles, the muscles in our butt, turning off. And when this happens, we immediately overload our spine. So what you have to do to really ultimately fix the problem is change how you move. Mm -hmm. So you have to get your psoas muscles working effectively, and you have to get your glute muscles working properly in order to stop the back problem from recurring. So are there practitioners who can help us with this? Like, you don't necessarily need to go to an orthopedic surgeon for that, right? Like maybe physiotherapy or massage therapy or fitness experts. What do you think? Yeah, probably the last person you want to see is a surgeon. Yeah. Um, but for sure, either a Pilates instructors, massage therapists, physiotherapists, people who have a, an interest in looking 
looking at the spine, looking at your posture. The advantage of the therapist, uh, physiotherapist, massage therapist, is that they can relax the muscles for you. They can rebalance the muscles around your spine. The key, though, is you need to do some exercises after you've had, say, a treatment like that to address the root movement cause. Right. You know, it could be simple. You may be carrying too much weight. Or, you, you know, your, as you said, your posture may be bad. It, it could be simple fixes, yeah? Absolutely. And weight is an issue. Five pounds can make a difference, unfortunately. You yeah. know, it's like putting on a backpack and walking around with extra weight that eventually your muscles will strengthen if, so long as you use them correctly. But one of the biggest issues I've seen is that people will go to physio, they'll go to the chiropractor, massage therapist, and they get treated and they feel great. And they'll do their exercises and they feel great. But then you see them standing in the line of the bank and look at their posture right. and it's horrible yeah. or when they're sitting and I'm actually I'm guilty of this I'm really tall and I slouch when I sit yeah, so do and I. it's so bad for my back and mm. it's a habit and so I catch myself you know slouching and then I, I correct so that I'm seated with my vertebrae stacked properly and I don't know for some reason I just can't always sit like that and, and driving yeah. car seat what is it with car seats I don't know you every time you and I talk though I try and sit better so maybe it's just i need to talk to you more because then that way i'll sit because to quote chevy chase i'm a tremendous slouch so you know i need to figure it out i'm not that tall i'm like six feet tall it, it shouldn't be that much of an issue but my posture is terrible so maybe that's something we need to work on maybe next time you come back we'll discuss ways to fix your posture what do you think about that that would be fantastic because you know what it is key and it's all the little things you know even if you can stand correctly for five minutes or sit correctly for five minutes it makes a difference so let's do it fantastic thank you so much for coming on the show today my pleasure jamie we have to take a short break but when we return we'll discuss how to spice up your baking on the tonic the tonic is brought to you by purely natural their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble grit-free and great tasting greens on the market Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Welcome back. In addition to being a lawyer, my next guest has been writing for Tonic Magazine for over six years. Since 2015, she's written the very popular cookbook review column, My Wife Naomi. Hey, sweetheart. Hi. Today, we're going into a new direction. You mentioned one of the authors last month, but we're going to be talking specifically about cooking and even more specifically baking with spices and herbs. Yeah? Yeah. Let's get the ball rolling. Where do you want to go? So I was thinking 
thinking about this, you know, in terms of some people might listen and say, well, why do we need to do that? You know, like, what's wrong with plain, you know, cake and brownies and cookies and And chocolate and vanilla? Yeah, exactly. Nothing is wrong. You know, the classics are great and, you know, they're there for a reason, but they would get boring. You know, I was I was thinking of that quote. The only constant is change, or change is the only constant, which is from a Greek philosopher. I had to look it up. You know, so while there's times like Thanksgiving when you stick to the classics, maybe, but otherwise, especially if you're cooking often, you just might get a little bored. And our palates are changing. Like, they've changed. When I look at recipes from, I have some old cookbooks, which are fun, but they never have salt in the baking. They don't call, or they might call for a pinch of salt, when in fact, I'd use a teaspoon of salt now because we now recognize the role of salt in baking. So as we get used to spice, just like how, you know, when you're a kid, you can't tolerate spice if you're not used to it. And then to get older, you start sort of appreciating salt, bitter spice. And so, you know, we're expanding our horizons and that goes for baking too. Okay. So if we're going to talk about baking with spice, which cookbook would you like to start with? Let's talk about The New Way to Cake, which is the book that I started talking about last month. The author is Benjamina Abwehi. This is a British cookbook. She's a UK chef, and she appeared on The Great British Bake Off, which I didn't watch, but, you know, a lot of people do. And I think she was quite popular. She she runs a blog, and this is her first book. It's just about cake. But that's okay. Sometimes smaller books are okay. It is physically small. Like, it's not going to take up a lot of space on your shelf. But in terms of flavor, you know, the recipes do pack a punch. She is Nigerian. She grew up in London, but she's from a Nigerian family. And what she says is that, you know, she is used to big flavors, but not so much in baking. And while this book isn't specifically focused on baking with spices, she uses them. And, you know, you notice it, or at least I noticed that when I went through the book. And to me, the recipes were more interesting for it. Because just to back up, everybody knows about cinnamon, you know, I I use cinnamon, vanilla, salt, you know, even it's now pumpkin pie, spice season, if you like that. Everybody knows about that, but there's more, you know, and and there's more, and this might be new to North American culture, but, you know, other cultures use it, and it's worth trying. And so, for example, spiced sweet potato cake with cream cheese frosting, or hot chocolate and halva pudding. Halva is a a Middle Eastern dessert made of sesame seeds, lemon ricotta and thyme mini loaves, pomegranate molasses cake with labna icing. Labna is like a really thick yogurt, plum and black pepper cake, pecan and burnt honey cake. So you're talking about you've got spices, herbs, like some burnt flavors, like slightly bitter and sweet, salty and sweet, all those things that make the desserts just a little bit more interesting, a little bit more different from your typical. Were the recipes that you looked at, were they accessible, even though they may be using ingredients that are out of the ordinary for a North American palate? Yes. I mean, you might need, for some of them, you might need to make a trip to the to a grocery store or order something on Amazon, but a lot of them you have in your kitchen or at the grocery store, you know, not a problem. What I made was a sumac spelt and apple cake. Now, I had sumac. I've had sumac for a while. I don't have that much opportunity to use it, so that's partly what drove my decision is, oh, I've got sumac. Let me try this cake and let's see, because sumac is known to have a citrusy, lemony, slightly florally flavor, and I like lemon and apples, so I thought, let's try that. It's actually a vegan cake, just which I thought was interesting to try, and whole grain. And it was really good. 
nobody would say in tasting it, oh, this is a sumac cake, even though there was a tablespoon of sumac. It's just there was a back note of more lemon, maybe, and it's hard to describe. Yeah, you, you can't put your finger on what it was. I mean, I tried the cake and it, it was very good. It didn't taste savory. The sumac kind of melted into the background. Apples were still forward. So it was recognizable as an apple cake. It just sort of tasted exotic for, like, it was amorphous. It wasn't distinct. Slightly. Now, I also made these bitter chocolate and rosemary torts, which were really yummy. They were, like, little mini flourless cakes. And, you know, you could take this recipe and make it without the rosemary if you don't like rosemary or substitute something else. But very chocolatey, made them in mini muffin tins. So very rich, fudgy, little chocolate cakes with a backdrop of rosemary. And that, the rosemary is more distinct. So if you don't like rosemary, you might not like it, but I do. And I liked it with the chocolate. It just made it more interesting. Yeah. I, you know, you wouldn't think that rosemary goes with chocolate, right? Like just, I've never had that combination before, but it absolutely worked. As strong as the rosemary was, and you could absolutely taste it more so than the sumac and the apple cake that you made, it didn't take away from the, if you're a chocolate lover, it didn't subsume the chocolate. It was still a chocolate dessert. Yes, it was definitely a chocolate dessert. It was very chocolatey with the addition of rosemary. And her philosophy is to make these recipes simple. I mean, I don't know that they're all necessarily simple, but they're not multi-layered, you know, many day to make cakes. They're relatively simple. The good news is if people are interested in the recipes that we just discussed, there's an opportunity for you to get this cookbook. So like we did last month, if you send an email to jamie at tonictorono.com and tell us why you like the tonic so much, you'll be in the running to get a copy of A New Way to Cake. Let's move on to the next book that you wanted to feature this month. Yes, I came across this book last year and then I revisited it. It's called Mastering Spice by a chef named Lior Sekartz. This is an Israeli chef who went to France, went to French culinary school and worked in a number of famous French restaurants like Le Bernardin, which is in New York City. So he's quite accomplished. He planned to open his own restaurant, but then he decided he didn't want to work the hours. He had a family. He didn't want to work the restaurant hours and open a spice business. And this cookbook was really interesting because it's like a regular cookbook, covers, you know, vegetables, pasta, meat, desserts, everything, but it's focused on spice. And so for each chapter and each recipe, he'll suggest a spice blend. And then there's alternatives too. You know, if you don't like this spice blend, try this spice blend and change this ingredient. So it's uh, many recipes in one and it's focused on the spices. And sometimes they're more traditional, you know, that might be for the Italian, you know, for the pasta, there's, you know, oregano and basil and fennel, but then they might also have, there are some recipes that are less obvious or things that you might not think of. Now, today we're talking about baking. So there is a baking chapter. Mm-hmm. And for example, he's got poppy seed shortbread with ginger and nutmeg, but you can also change it up to become cocoa sesame cookies with urfa chilies and allspice, or take the cookies and make them into peanut butter and jelly sandwich cookies. So same recipe with some tweaks. And I wanted to try, I decided to make brownies. So I think chocolate lends itself to some spices and I wanted to choose something easy. And these were absolutely easy. So I made the brownies with a spice blend of cardamom, pink peppercorns, and urfa chilies. Urfa chilies are chilies from northern Turkey. They're not everywhere. You might have to go to a specialty store for them, but they're really good. They're kind of fruity, not too spicy, a little bit smoky, and they go really well with chocolate. 
brownies could have been mocha black pepper brownies or minted brownies with candy ginger. You know, there were other options, but I had all these ingredients and I wanted to use them in a different way to make the brownies. And when I made the spice blend, I thought, mm, this might be a little bit too strong and I hope I don't ruin these brownies, but they were really good. I liked it. Yeah, it's interesting because what really came through, I mean, certainly you could taste the pepper. That was more of a back note, but the cardamom was sort of forward in these. And again, I wouldn't have thought the cardamom goes with chocolate, but in this case, the floral elements of the cardamom really sort of highlighted the chocolate flavor. And I thought these were quite interesting. So if you're bored with the same old, same old brownies, or you're tired of mixing it with like coffee or whatever, this would be a great option for somebody who's looking to change it up. Yeah, I would. I even added a bit more chilies because I was worried the cardamom would be too forward, and I would add more chilies next time just to have them a bit more pronounced. Yeah, so it's I, good to try something different. I looked at this cookbook too, and for those who I wouldn't say it's the chemistry of baking, but like there's a whole section at the back where he sort of talks about the derivation of the herbs and the spices and what they are classically paired with. So if you're not sure, if you don't want to experiment too much, there is some direction as to like which are in which families and which are complementary to each other. So let's talk a bit about your tips for experimenting with herbs. Yeah, I was thinking about what do we do even without these cookbooks? Yeah. Have we been experimenting? And what? And, and if you just wanted to try it and see if you like it, what could you do? So definitely, I have some date syrup, also called Silan, S-I-L-A-N, and dates. And they add really good flavor, kind of a caramelly flavor. You can use date puree or dates as an alternative to maple syrup or honey or sugar mm-hmm. in your baking. You can try anytime you're making something chocolate. You could think about Mexican chocolate. Right. You can add cinnamon, a little cayenne, and or any other chilies or, you know, and some vanilla to, you know, like cookies, brownies, chocolate cake, and just and see what you think about it. Mm-hmm. I do like Aleppo pepper, which is from Syria, or the Urfa chilies, as I mentioned. Uh, but there's a lot of chilies, and cayenne won't add too much flavor, but it'll add a little spice at the back of your throat, so you don't add too much. You could add black pepper and cardamom to roasted fruit, which we've been doing, particularly yep. plums right now. The Italian prune plums, I, I think that we're just finishing the season with those, so if you can find them, cardamom goes really nicely with them if you want to roast them in the oven. It is, and if you were to Google, you know, roasted plums, cardamom, black pepper, I'm sure things would come up because it's a classic pairing. You can either roast the plums on their own and have them for breakfast or with yogurt, or you can make a cake out of it or a pie that you're going to make anyways. I have also in the past added chopped rosemary to my plum tart, which is also a really good pairing. I think thyme would go too. You could buy some fresh ginger and turmeric, which you can get in the grocery store. Be careful, don't add too much of it because turmeric has kind of an earthy flavor. You can steep it in milk. You can add it to smoothies. You can add it to water with some lemon and make tea, hot or cold. And it's said to have some health benefits and definitely add some flavor just to see how you feel about these spices. And then you could add them to some other things. So start small. You know, more is not necessarily better. You know, add some, try it. You can always add more. You can't add less. But there's a lot out there. And it's just, you know, if you're bored, if you want to expand, you want to try something new, uh, spices is the way to take a recipe and make it just a little bit different and interesting. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, You're going to come back next month, yes? Of course. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss abstinence on the tonic. 
Jack Nathan Health offers Canadians convenient care with 74 multidisciplinary clinics located within Walmart stores. The largest ever Jack Nathan Health Medical Centre is now open in Vaughan, Ontario at 8300 Highway 27. The new 8300 square foot clinic offers integrated services for the whole family, including family medicine, physiotherapy and chiropractic, chronic pain management, massage and a registered dietitian. There's also an on-site Dynacare blood laboratory plus same-day referrals, walk-in appointments and a new annual health assessment option. Jack Nathan Health is a one-stop shop for proactive health management. For more information, visit jacknathanhealth.com. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic is a health and wellness magazine distributed with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in the most affluent neighborhoods in Toronto. It's also available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA. For more information about Tonic Magazine, visit tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, you'll love Tonic Magazine, and vice versa. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Carlisle Jansen is a sex therapist and founder of Good For Her, Toronto's premier sexuality store and workshop centre. She's the author of two books, including Sex Yourself. You can find her educational videos and TED Talk at carlislejansen.com, and she can be contacted at carlisle at goodforher.com. Welcome back to the show. How are you? Hello, Jamie. I'm well. How are you? I'm doing well. Today, we've got a unique topic, right? It's it's one that you might not consider as being about sex, but it obviously fits into the spectrum of sex and no sex, and that is abstinence. Mm -hmm. So I think abstinence is sort of a nebulous concept. It means one thing to one person, one thing to somebody else. How would you define it? (laughs) Well, and it kind of depends on what you consider sex. Right. So, you know, for some people, masturbation isn't sex, and for others it is. Does it include watching an erotic film or texting someone suggestive kinds of comments? Does it include oral sex? Does it include sex toys? Does it include breast or nipple stimulation or, say, dry humping? So we're all looking at it differently. How does it relate to people who are non-sexual or asexual? people are people who don't feel that urge, that desire. And so sometimes they still have romantic feelings, and so they may want a partner where there's romance involved, but they don't necessarily want to have sex. And they, however, will sometimes, though, engage in sex with a partner if they have a partner who's not asexual. They will have sex with their partner and consent to that because that is something that their partner enjoys. Right. And so even if they identify as asexual, they may still have have sex or they may have a partner who is asexual. So it's similar in terms of like abstinence is a choice, right? right? Yeah. As opposed to being told that you don't or, you know, whatever. Asexuality is not really a choice. It's like, I don't. I just don't feel, I don't enjoy having sex. It's not something that turns me on. So it's slightly different. So in your view, does abstinence exclude masturbation? No. Uh, For me, abstinence, then this is my own personal view, um, is that you can abstain from sex with another person, but that you can still pleasure yourself. To me, but that's that's my definition. Yeah, I agree with you, actually. I, I would make that distinction as well. Mm-hmm. And again, it just depends on where you draw the line. But, you know, masturbation has often been given a bad rap or that, you know, you're addicted to masturbation. You're doing it too often. You need to, there's the no-fap movements yeah. online of, you know, like, I'm not going to masturbate and I'm going to 
heal myself. And, you know, it may be that, you know, if you're doing it so much that it gets in the way because you're late for work or you're not connecting with other people, then maybe it's worthwhile reducing that. But very rarely is masturbation a bad thing or something that takes away from, not that having sex is a bad thing, but for some people, they're going to choose not to have sexual relationships. Well, with the masturbation, like, do you believe that there's such a thing as being addicted to it? Or is it that just sort of what we call it? It just means maybe there's reasons why somebody, you know, is out of control, I guess we could, we could call yeah. it or, or doing it too much to the point where it's not healthy. Yeah, I would say that it's more about a compulsion. Right. So it's that and it's often around relieving anxiety yep. or dealing with something. It's a coping mechanism. And so really what you need to address is what's the issue at hand, because it could be masturbation. It could be shopping. It could be eating. It could be yeah. sex with other people. Right. There's lots of different ways that we cope, you know, even just, you know, watching Netflix or scrolling through Instagram. So that's what I would say is more of the issue. It's generally in and of itself. There's different camps on this, but I'm of the camp that doesn't believe that masturbation is actually an addiction. Yeah, I I tend to agree with you. You said that abstinence, you know, aside from somebody who's asexual is a choice. Mm -hmm. What would lead someone to make that choice? What do you see? do it for a period of time. So maybe I want to take a break from relationships. Maybe I had a really bad breakup or there was some trauma or there was drama. It might be that I really want to focus on myself, my work, my school. Maybe it's that right now you want to just not take a risk around COVID-19 or it might be, you know, you're worried about sexually transmitted infections or pregnancy. Maybe you were recently diagnosed with a sexually transmitted infection and you want to get through that or deal with that, figure out how you're going to approach partners around that. A lot of people will choose abstinence when they are practicing learning how to orgasm or they want to delay their ejaculations. They want to learn what gives them pleasure because they don't seem to enjoy sex with other people. Sometimes we're just not ready for a relationship. Sometimes people want to take a little longer. They just want to get to know people and they'll they'll decide I'm going to be abstinent for the next three months and then if there's somebody I really like, maybe I'll connect with them sexually. Sometimes it's that intercourse is painful. Sometimes it's because, you know, you have a hard time accessing safer sex options. So there's lots of different reasons for it and can be really healthy reasons. When you list them like that, I mean, they're all logically grounded, right? Like Mm -hmm. you could say that somebody's turned their mind to it and said, you know, there is a reason why I'm not partaking in this sort of natural function, right? And and it makes sense. Mm -hmm. But I presume there's also like a cohort of people that are are making that decision perhaps for unhealthier reasons, like maybe fear or anxiety, right? That that is an underlying issue that prevents them from moving forward, like with a sexual relationship? Sure. I mean, certainly there are some people where, you know, whether it is that you had bad sexual experiences or you're afraid of them or, you know, maybe you have a hard time with erections or orgasms, you didn't have good models of intimacy and relationship in your family. So there can be lots of barriers for us to want to be in a sexual relationship and they can really impact 
our abilities to face that fear. And sometimes we need to work on ourselves before we approach that, do some healing, do some personal growth, do some reflection on, you know, how it is that, you know, you got stuck somewhere or how bad would it really be if you lost your erection or you couldn't orgasm, you know, those kinds of things to kind of sort through. But, you know, certainly relationships can be challenging and the sexual side of them has their own unique challenges. Other than sort of giving yourself a break, because there's a logical reason why you're abstaining, are there other benefits to abstinence? You know, for some people, it can be really healing to say, I'm going to focus on me, I'm going to bring, you know, do my own pleasure, especially for people who might have a hard time maintaining boundaries. They find it really hard when they say, like, you know, I don't, you know, we're not going to go out on Saturday night, and the partner sort of persists, and they give in, and then they feel bad about that. If you have a hard time holding boundaries, it can be good. It can be healing to just figure out what you want. It can be good, as I mentioned, like just, you know, sort of, okay, while COVID's on, I'm I'm just, because I just, I can't deal with the stress. I just, I know that if I get together with someone, it's going to be really stressful making the choice whether I'm going to be in a bubble or not. And it's also going to be stressful if I have sex with them, then I'm going to be stressed out for the next week wondering if I caught something, right? Right. Yeah. Or you may just want to finish that great novel that you have in your head, right? You know, you know, like focusing on another aspect of your life because sex isn't ever everything, right? You know. Yeah, and relationships can be all-consuming and really distracting. And for some people, you know, you can compartmentalize that. But if you're the type of person who's constantly checking to see if your partner texted you back, you know, then that's going to prevent you from really focusing on other things that maybe you have on your mind and what you want to accomplish. So there are positive aspects to abstinence, Mm -hmm. but I presume there are some drawbacks as well, yeah? Yeah, well, if you're in a sexual relationship with someone that's monogamous, you know, it's certainly a little bit challenging for the partner. It creates a lot of tension. You have to have a conversation with your partner if you're going to make that choice. Now, you can negotiate and say, okay, you can have other sexual connections and you can set up those parameters. That can be hard. That can lead to, you know, your partner saying like, okay, well, now I want to actually have this other relationship. Or, you know, I have a friend who really did not have any desire for sex and her partner had different sexual partners. And eventually she decided, like, I don't want to do that anymore. And just decided every Friday night we're going to have sex. You want to keep it (laughs) in-house. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize something called responsive desire, which is that we don't feel horny spontaneously. So sometimes the abstinence comes from like, you know what, I just, I never feel sexy. I never want to have sex. And the reality is that for some of us, we have to kind of get aroused and then we feel desire. So when we, a partner kisses us or touches us or gives us a massage, that's when we feel desire. But it doesn't happen while we're cooking dinner and thinking, do I want to have sex right now? So sometimes understanding how our bodies work and if we don't know that, then that means that we're potentially giving up on a situation that we could really enjoy. We just don't know how to get there. Is there any risk that with abstinence, you sort of like you forget? You know, you forget the benefits of sex and or maybe can't get into the swing as much? Well, certainly there's this idea of use it or lose it. Yeah. And, and certainly it's not like, it's kind of like riding a bicycle. You, it's not like you forget how to do it. Yeah. But you do forget some of your confidence. 
you lose touch with a little bit of what you liked. And, and our bodies really change as time goes on. So if you are abstinent for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, sometimes what used to work doesn't work anymore. And you sort of, that can be really disconcerting. So there are definitely, you know, things that happen if we don't engage. Now, it's not that none of that is reversible. It's just that sometimes we need to reduce our expectations or change them in terms of what's going to look like the first time we're back. That makes good sense. Thank you so much for coming on the show to discuss this today. Always a pleasure. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Philip Rashadis, ND, Dr. Aaron Boynton, Naomi Busson, and Carlisle Jansen. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can follow us at The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. Congratulations to Sandra Belford, who won a copy of New World Sourdough Cookbook. If you'd like a chance to win a copy of the cookbook, The New Way to Cake, that we discussed today, you can send me an email at jamie at tonictoronto.com and tell me what you like about the show. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. The September-October issue is available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighbourhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Next week on the show, we'll discuss boosting cognitive skills, five new cooking techniques, and COVID divorce. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.